For those who've been coming over these past weeks, starting in the uh, first Monday of January, we've begun to go through in a systematic way for this winter, January and February, um, the Eightfold Path of Practice, which is the fundamental teachings that were given um, as instructions by the Buddha for living a wise or awakened life. And in the course of the Eightfold Path, um, as we've done so far, the first step we did considered was what's called wise understanding or right understanding that life has suffering in it and that no one um, is excused from that. But that it's possible to attend to that suffering in all different ways, in ways that create more suffering for oneself and other beings, or in ways that bring freedom and compassion and liberation. And that we all can sense within ourselves the potential for greater compassion and greater understanding. Um, so wise or right understanding is sensing that potential no matter what life presents to us for living from our Buddha nature in an awakened way. And then what's called wise attitude or um, right attitude is how to approach the path is really with a sense of openness um, and interest to really discover for yourself what brings freedom of heart, what brings harmony, what brings discord, what brings entanglement. And then we began the steps in the middle of the Eightfold Path after establishing some wise understanding um, that are the basis for compassionate action. Last week we spoke about what's called right speech or wise speech. Um, and the gist of this is, as I said a week or so ago, um, in looking at compassionate action is that meditation's all right, but it's not worth terribly much if the rest of one's life isn't in some fundamental harmony in this human realm. Most kind of colloquially, it's very hard to sit in meditation after a day of killing and stealing doesn't work terribly well, or lying, or whatever it happens to be. So to follow the Eightfold Path, one old sage put it this way, it is better to ask the way ten times than to take the wrong road. All right? To follow the Eightfold Path really asks us to question how are we acting in terms of our speech, in terms of the attitude or understanding that we bring to the difficulties of life. There is an invitation in this Eightfold Path to discover for yourself that potential of liberation, of freedom of heart that is the Buddha's joy and happiness and that was the reason the Buddha went around India talking to people and saying, you too can be happy. You too can discover this freedom of your own true nature. This next step in the Eightfold Path, then, is the one my teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to love to talk about almost more than anything else. Um, and that is the step of what's called wise action or right action. And these teachings are part of what's called the timeless Dharma, the eternal law, the Tao, the way things are, 
And whether it was a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago or ten thousand or a hundred thousand years from now, they still describe the principles of a wise human life, wise any kind of life. So the chant goes, Silena Sukotinyanti, Silena Poka Sambata, Silena Niputinyanti Datsama, Silang Visotaye. And the translation is that those who embody wise action, it will lead to their happiness. Those who embody or fulfill wise action, it will lead to their well-being. Those who embody wise action, it will lead to the liberation of their hearts. Now the main underlying principle of wise action is what, what um, Gandhi called ahimsa, or non-harming. What then is right or wise action, asks the Buddha. Herein someone avoids the killing or harming of living beings abstains from it, without stick or sword, conscientious, full of sympathy and compassion, they are desirous of the welfare of all living beings that they encounter. They abstain from stealing, from taking what does not belong to them. They do not move through the world with thievish intent. They abstain from causing harm through the misuse of sexuality or intoxicants. They move through the world causing neither harm to themselves nor harm to another. If we wish to create peace in the world or love in the world or anything of benefit when we look out in the world, what's necessary first is to create it in ourselves. If we can't be that peace or that integrity or that compassion that we wish were there in the world that has its struggles and conflicts, if we can't do it, how can we expect it to grow and blossom anywhere else? As St. Augustine says, where love and integrity is, what can be wanting? And where it is not, what can be profitable? This wise action starts in the heart. As Rabindranath Tagore has said, we imagine our mind is a mirror, our heart and mind, more or less accurately reflecting what is happening outside of us. On the contrary, our heart and mind itself is the principal element of creation. And so as we reflect, and as we consider, and as we intend, so then we act. There's a tremendous joy and happiness in acting when our actions are in harmony, when they bring an integrity to the circumstances of this human life. Because out of the human mind or heart, all kinds of things are possible. In the Buddhist cosmology, there's talk of the six realms of existence the realms of uh, the human realm and the realms of angels and the animal realm and the um, realm of the hungry ghosts and the realm of jealous gods and the, the hell realms. And one of the interesting things in Buddhist psychology 
is that all these realms are said to be able to be experienced as a human being in your human body. And I've talked about it in other weeks and other times. If you want to know the realm of the hungry ghost that's never satisfied, all you have to do is go up to Las Vegas, right, and spend some time there. And you get a sense of what that realm is like, where the state of consciousness is one that's being driven. I'm imagining the slot machines, but that's just my own, you know. If you're interested in the realm of the, the gods who are, all, who are fight for power, you could just go to Washington, D.C. and get, you know, involved in our political process and that would be the animal realm is characterized i mean there's all those nice sweet animals that we think of but often it's characterized really as a, a realm that's um, got a lot of fear in it about eating having enough to eat or being eaten who's going to eat you you know and there's 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 a whole there's whole human realms that are associated with that you may have spent some time in them um, <laughs> and so forth. And in the hell realms, human beings, still at this very day, there are 30 nations on earth that are in civil war where people are en masse killing one another in some form or another um, in this so-called modern civilized time. In terrible ways, with incredible modern technology, the best of modern technology used to torture, kill, maim, harm other beings. So all these are possible out of our human uh, mind and heart, our human potential. We can create suffering in those ways. Or we can also create the opposite. The suffering comes when we feel the most separate. My tribe, my people, my land, my house, they're different. That kind of hatred or greed or grasping. The harmony comes when we see that it's us. The beauty of wise action is that it stems from the heart of compassion. And whether it succeeds or not doesn't matter. What matters in the end is what is the motivation in the heart. Because you can't determine your success but you can determine what is the intention as you act. And what it brings is, in kind of colloquial parlance, the sleep of the just. To go to sleep after living a day or a week, even in difficult circumstances, true to your own integrity, and to not consciously choose to harm others or yourself, brings you a kind of rest that nothing else can bring, it brings to us. There's a kind of beauty in our human integrity. And so wise action is the commitment to live without harming, to bring our life into the sphere of compassion. It's called entering the human realm. Because if you're involved in a lot of killing and stealing and various things like that, or whatever, where there is action based on greed and hatred and so forth, you're not really in the human realm, you're in the human body. But it's not the inner experience of the human realm. Another way to put it 
is that wise action or compassionate action offers the gift of protection to everyone you meet. I will not harm you. What a beautiful gift to give to the beings that you encounter. One of my favorite stories about this, which I read probably once a year here or something like that, comes from the Christian Desert Fathers. Abbot Anastasius had a book written on very fine parchment with 18 gold pieces, both the Old and New Testament. And once a certain young brother came to visit him and seeing the book made off with it. So that day when the abbot went to read his Bible, he found it was gone and he realized the brother had taken it. But he did not send after him to inquire for fear that the brother might add harm by perjuring himself and denying the theft. Imagine that. So the brother went down to the nearby city to Alexandria in order to sell the book and the price he asked was 16 gold coins. And the buyer said, leave it with me that I might find out what it is worth. And with that, the buyer took the book to the holy Anastasius and said, Father, take a look at this book. Tell me whether you think I ought to buy it for 16 gold pence. Is it worth that much? And the abbot looked and said, yes, it is a very fine book. It is worth at least that much. So the buyer went back and said to the young brother, here's your money. I showed the book to Abbot Anastasia, and he said it is indeed a fine book worth at least 16 gold coins. And the brother said, is that all he asked? He made no other remarks? No, said the buyer. Well, said the brother, I changed my mind. I don't want to sell this book. And then he hastened back to Abbot Anastasia and begged him with tears to take the book back. But the abbot would not accept it, saying, go in peace, my brother. I make a gift of it to you. But the brother wept further and said, If you do not take it back, I shall never find peace. And after that, this young brother dwelt with the holy abbot for the rest of his life. And, of course, these stories, which are written down, and that's nearly 2,000 years old, are remembered because they're so extraordinary that someone should do that. And yet, at the same time, we all recognize it. You recognize the beauty of that story. What a response to make. It's not the stuff, but it's the heart that responds to that kind of injustice or that difficulty. Imagine that response from yourself, because you can, you can feel it inside. And it's beautiful. It says again, as a gift, no matter what happens, no matter what forces, what difficulty arise, as a gift from my spiritual life and heart, I will not harm you. What a gift to give to others. And when you meet another person, a being, with that kind of integrity, it's a very wonderful thing. And you respect them and you love them. Um, I remember being in Thailand and going to a temple called Wat Tamkaborg. And Wat Tamkaborg um, was uh, an addictions treatment center run by this great old abbot who had been a Thai narcotics agent for a long time. <laughs> Somewhat unsuccessfully, but you know how the war in drugs is going, on, on drugs is going in every country, pretty unsuccessfully. 
you know, it's really terrible because it's become, in America, really it's, it's just a disguise for our uh, racism or our poverty or things like that. It's terrible. But anyway, this Thai narcotics agent had um, an auntie who was a, a, a Buddhist saint, and he went to visit her one day, and she said, Sonny, you're doing it all wrong. You know, you're not going to help people by arresting them. You need to actually heal them. And he said, well, how do I heal them? And she said, you take, you know, drop that job and come and practice with me. Become a monk. I'll show you. So he became a monk, and she made him take the strictest of the monk's vows that you could possibly. She also taught him herbal medicine. And eventually he set up this monastery. And the monks of the monastery kept the 227 basic precepts of the monk only to eat what's put in your hand that day, not to keep money. But they added 10 more practices. They wouldn't ride in any conveyance. So when the abbot needed to go to Bangkok for some reason or other, which was about 100 miles away, he took his walking staff and he walked to Bangkok. And then when he was finished, he walked back. And you would go in there and there'd be 300 people going through treatment at a time. And part of it, it wasn't Buddhist meditation. I mean, if you're um, really addicted, meditation is useless. It's, it's not the right practice. The practices were chanting and devotion, because that's very strong. They're putting your faith in something um, like 12-step program, in something higher. The practices began with this herbal medicine. He gave a kind of purgative that his aunt taught him from these different herbs. And for four days, you just spent those four days lying on the floor throwing up, basically, and purifying your body. And then there were chant purifications, and there were work purification. It was really purification. And in the end, there was a taking of some precepts. Um, and you began to wonder, well, how does this place work? Look at it. Is it the herbal medicine that works? Because it had the best cure rate of any addiction treatment center in Southeast Asia. Um, Three-quarters of the people who came got sober and didn't go back to whatever drugs they'd been using. And admittedly, they also arranged for them to go back to monasteries and communities that would care for them. But the clue came when you met the abbot. Not only was there the herbal medicine and the Buddhist faith and all of that, but the abbot was like a, a rock. He just sat there. He met your eyes with his, and you had a feeling that his inner integrity was greater than the power of anybody's addiction who walked into that temple. And so his spirit was really at the center of the cure of that place. So when we meet someone who has that kind of virtue or that kind of integrity, that commitment to non-harming, which is right action, there is a kind of fragrance a shine, a beauty to it. The fragrance of sandalwood, dagara, and rose bay will go only as far as the wind, said the Buddha. But the fragrance of the heart of virtue, the virtuous heart, rises even to the gods. So wise action, then, is our trustworthiness, our compassion, and that becomes a gift of protection in, in our life, for ourselves and other beings. People say, how do I get protection? You know, here's a nice protection cord you get from some great lama or something like that. What do you get protected from when you do this? You take the precepts and the vows, I won't kill, I won't steal, I won't harm others. So somebody asked um, 
you know, what do these protect you from? To one great lama, he said, why yourself, of course. You know, the real protection is necessary. They also express the vows that we take to not harm other beings, express our interconnectedness. Because it's not them, it's us. And if we sense really deeply what would cause us to harm another being, at its root it will be fear, greed, aggression, all those things, ambition, jealousy, that are based on a false sense of separation. They're a kind of inner prison. And the step of the Eightfold Path of non-harming is to step out of that prison and into the freedom of the heart. It's a movement of spirit. It has a lot of forgiveness in it as well. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, wrote Longfellow, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. If we could really see them and what they've been through. And there's such a kind of value to it. Um, our integrity is really worth so much. Remember this passage from William Faulkner where he says, some things you must always be unable to bear, some things you must never stop refusing to bear, injustice and outrage and dishonor and shame, no matter how young you are or how old you got, not for praise or cash, your picture in the paper or money in the bank, neither just refuse to bear them. So the Buddha's instructions on how to embody a spiritual life, the most basic and simple and universal instructions, how to fulfill a spiritual life, weren't so much about emptiness, you know, and the meditative states of the samadhi and jhana, if you really want to live a spiritual life, do these simple vows, these simple practices, and your life will be transformed. They are the commitments of compassion. Now, traditionally, they're described in terms of these, um, whether you call them precepts or vows or inner commitments, and they become a, a form by which we can examine our actions. The first one is, uh, goes like this. Panati samadhiyami. I undertake the training of the heart, or the training of compassion, to not kill or cause harm to other beings. And you go into a temple and you recite that. Each time you go, they, they have you do it each time because they know that you probably messed up in the week in between, so when you go back, you can kind of reaffirm it. What it says is, first, do no harm. To move through the world not caught by our aggression, our aversions, our fears, to such an extent that we would harm another being. Um, and it really means to make conscious how we live in the environment of humans and other beings, how we drive, how we treat the beings around us. 
You know, I always talk about this cartoon from the New Yorker in hunting season where the deer are on the hillside and the hunters have their guns down below and the deer, little balloons are talking to each other saying, why don't they thin their own goddamn herds, you know? (laughs) Because it's very easy to make excuses about too many deer. I don't know, I don't, I haven't seen very many deer on 101, you know, as I'm trying to drive in all that heavy traffic. It doesn't seem like deer are the problem. And what's lovely, if you go into one of the great forest monasteries and meet the monks who live there, is even the way that they walk, they try to walk so as not to harm living beings. It's such a beautiful practice to make it your your action to not cause harm to small beings and large small ones don't like it if you look and notice they don't enjoy it any more than anybody else um or if you you watch tibetan llamas and so forth we brought the various llamas to the zoo and the aquarium in monterey and things like they're so happy and they're waving at all their brothers and sisters who are in you know animal incarnations and may you be enlightened soon you know it's really it's fabulous there's such a spirit of reverence that's there with each being they meet. And even in the monastery where I lived, in Ajahn Chah's forest monastery, which was on the border of um, Laos and Cambodia in Thailand, Mekong River Valley. And during I was there, I'd worked on medical teams in the Peace Corps for a couple of years in villages there. Um, and then I became a full-time monk um, and at night we could watch the bombers go overhead and see the flashes of the bombs in Cambodia and Laos. It was really relatively close. And we used to get visits. I used to get visits from my friends who were still working in the peace movement for the Quakers in Vietnam or in Laos and stuff, people that I'd known. Um, and they'd come and say, what are you doing sitting here? You know, there's a war on. You have to go and get out there and help. Um, but in some way there's always a war on, isn't there? And um, they would talk to my teacher and so forth. I said, well, you come and be with us for a while and see. And they would stay for a week or two weeks. And if you've been ever where there's a war, if you've ever spent time in a war zone, people go really crazy. There's a kind of possession or insanity that takes over human beings, wherever it is. And, um, you know, they'll steal from their own temples to sell it, to get money. They'll... They'll harm people that used to be part of their community and because they're so frightened. Um, and that was just a few miles away. you go there and it was really insane. And here in this monastery, some hundreds of acres, monks and nuns, you could lose your wallet or your gold watch or whatever was of value, and someone would pick it up and take it and bring it to the altar and a little sign on, did anyone lose their, their valuables? Or, you know, you could come in with any kind of difficulty and someone would meet you and say, is there something I can do for you? Um, and they would speak the truth. And it was as if the monastery was a living library that had been there for centuries of the possibility of human beings to live in respect for one another and all the creatures of the forest. And even if the war was all around, you could come and you could be reminded there, there is a different way for us to live. And it was carried, it was embodied in that place. So this is the first um, training practice, the vow or commitment not to kill or not to harm. 
And in a positive way, it's the cultivation, our care, of reverence for all life. Um, I remember being at a wonderful um, medicine ceremony out on the Great Plains, and it was actually led by an Iroquois medicine man named Mad Bear, an East Coast medicine man. And he stood up and did, it was, it was a whole group of psychologists and psychiatrists and so forth. It was, you know, people who really needed spiritual practice anyway. Um, and he stood up and he did a long prayer. It was 45 minutes or an hour to the spirit of the winds in the east and the winds in the west and the winds in the south and the winds in the north and the, the grains that moved and the clouds in the sky. And it was, by the end of it, it was the most exquisite meditation to open the senses to the mystery within which we breathe and move and live. But it was done with great reverence to this living earth. And so not only is it not to kill, but it's actually to care for life, a kind of ecological and compassionate way of living on the earth, to minimize harm. Because actually every time we drive, every time we get in a jet and fly someplace, you know, both the energy that we're using and the bugs that get squashed on the windshield and the traffic and all of the pollution and so forth. I mean, we contribute to the difficulties of human life. And it doesn't say not to do those things, but to do them consciously, to minimize our harm. That is the, the undertaking, the commitment of compassion, of wise action. I won't cause harm in that way doesn't mean being rigid about it either. When there were a lot of roaches at this Zen center, you know, and the students went to the Zen master and said, they're in all the food and people aren't coming. And just, what should we do? Should We've tried everything. We've cleaned everything. We've tried borax. It hasn't worked. What should we do? You know, should we exterminate them? But we took a vow not to kill. What should we do? And he looked back and he said, I'm not going to tell you. That was his answer. You have to figure it out. Because it's not always so easy, but what we do can be conscious. We can minimize harm. Then the second of these traditional vows or commitments of compassion is the vow or commitment not to steal. Just as the first one is not to aggress against others, this is non-greed, non-grasping, not to covet. And traditionally it's not to take not that which isn't given, because in a culture or a community where there's feeling like with a culture where there's killing, um, everybody's afraid. And there's bars on the windows and alarms and all of the kinds of insanity that come from that arise in a community. So we offer the non-harming of not taking what doesn't belong to us. And look how it complicates your mind to do it. You know, and the fact is that we don't own stuff anyway. We just have it temporarily. You think you own it, but you have to give it all back. And you don't get to keep a single thing. You are merely the accountant in the firm, right? Keeping track of it. And our culture is one that says, oh, get more, buy more, have more, own more, as if that were really true. You don't own anything. You use it for a time. So instead, this precept says first not to steal, not to take what doesn't belong to us. And similarly, this vow or this practice 
is to cultivate a sense of shared responsibility for the limited resources of this valley, of this county, of this bay area, of this community, of this earth. And if we lie on our back on a spring night and look into the stars, or let me see if I can find this beautiful passage from Einstein. Here it is. Einstein says, still, he said, there are moments when one feels free from one's own small identification with this human limitation and inadequacies. At such moments, one imagines that one stands on some spot of a small planet, gazing in amazement at the silent, profoundly moving beauty of the eternal, the unfathomable of life and death, and they flow into one and there is neither evolution nor destiny, only the precious presence of life as it is. Einstein talks about the sense of mystery a lot. Imagine if you see yourself as the caretaker of the earth, as the guardian of the earth and all her creatures, of your beloved earth. Because in fact, you know, not only is it not to steal or not be piggy, but to realize as we share things that there's a great kind of natural generosity that comes from the heart of uh, a Buddha in us. A story from Tales of the Magic Monastery, which is tales written by an old Trappist monk, a friend of mine, when he got tired of his own monastery and tried to conceive of what you could find in the real monastery, which he called the Magic Monastery. I went to the Magic Monastery after being tired of the bickering of my fellow monks and nuns. I went seeking. I was met by the guest master. He asked me what I was looking for. Frankly, I said, I'm looking for the pearl of great price. He looked at me with so much compassion, he slipped his hand to his pocket and drew it out and gave it to me. It was just like that. I was dumbfounded. I began to protest, you don't want to give it to me. Don't you want to keep it for yourself? But, 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 when I kept this up, he finally said, look, is it better to have the pearl of great price or give it away? Well, now I have it. I don't tell anyone. From some there would be disbelief and ridicule. You, the pearl of great price, ha! Others would be jealous. Someone might try to steal it. I have to take care of it. I do have it. But there's that nagging question. Is it better to have it or to give it away? How long will that question rob me of my joy? <laughs> so that each of these practices, one is to refrain from harming, but more than that, to actually care for the creatures of the earth. One is to refrain from taking or stealing or grasping. But more than that, it's a kind of generosity, a cultivation of the spirit of dhamma. You know, and initially there, the, the spirit of generosity we talk about is um, kind of tentative giving. Oh, I have this. Maybe I don't need this sweater. You know, I have too many sweaters. I'll give it to Salvation Army. You say, oh, no, I might need it, you know next year when I go camping, I should put it in the attic. And you kind of go back and forth, and I say, all right, I'm going to give it away. 
and you're, you're not really sure. But when you do, it's really, it feels pretty good, doesn't it? You know how, how good garage sales can feel? It's, just, it's not the money, it's just the divesting part, right? <laughs> so it's good, it's the beginning. That's, te- that's tentative giving. Then there's friendly giving, uh, or brotherly giving, and sisterly giving, where you say, well, I have this, and, and you don't have, please take this, you know, share, uh, let us share what we have. And there's a bigger heart to it. It feels so beautiful. And then that grows, and it turns into what's called kingly or queenly giving, royal giving, where the delight of giving is so much greater than the possession of stuff that you want to give away the best that you have, of your love, your time, your energy, your money, your things. Why don't you enjoy this? And you so enjoy the pleasure of someone else's receiving that that becomes the happiness of the heart. Daniel Berrigan, who writes, Sometime in your life, hope that you might see one starved person, the look on their face when the bread finally arrives. Hope that you might have baked it, or bought it, or even kneaded it yourself. And for the look on their face, for your meeting their eyes across a piece of bread, you might be willing to lose a lot, or suffer a lot, or even die a little. The last um, last month, remember, at the end of December, I said we were going to, on the last Monday of December, we were going to collect money for the soup kitchen in San Rafael, which we do collect money on Monday nights, different times, every year for the soup kitchen in San Rafael and so forth. But we didn't end up doing it because that, that Monday night was uh, was Christmas Day and not very many, many people came. I said, well, we're not going to get very much money. Let's save it. And so... I've, I've announced, I didn't last week, but over the course of weeks, that tonight would be the night. So that means all the money that you gave for parking and you gave to come in here and that you give in the baskets as you go out, which I hope is a lot, I want you there and give as much as you can, will go to a couple of things. It will go to the soup kitchen in San Rafael for people who are cold and hungry. It will go to the Indian earthquake relief, which is really necessary. And a little bit of it will go to our prison project as well um, for the primarily men, but some women as well. Um, mostly our prison project is working with men in San Quentin. Um, and the last thing we did before Christmas was to collect toys for them to give to their children. Because when you're inside and you have nothing to give to your own children, it's really a sad Christmas. It's not that the children don't get something, but that the fathers don't get to give anything to their children. You can hear how important, really it is, it's, it's so important to be able to give something as a human being. And when we were um, monks and nuns living in Asia, um, the spirit of generosity um, just permeated the societies of Thailand and Burma and parts of India and so forth. And you would come into a village and they would feed you and care for you and I mean, you have to sign up a year in advance to be able to offer food to the monks and nuns in Mahasi Saido's monastery where I practice in Mangun. So many people love this place and honor the dedication of the practitioners. It's a big monastery. There are a thousand or two thousand people who practice at once. And you can't, you need to wait in line to offer food. There's so much joy in supporting the people who are awakening. So much love. Uh, generosity in the society. 
But it's not just there. I mean, you can go to North Africa, you know, to the old villages, to the Bedouins, and, and um, you know, the kind of Arab hospitality, and be taken in and fed and clothed as if you were a king or a queen. But the truth is that you are not the king or queen. They're the kings and queens who know how to give this royal giving, say, yes, you know, you've come into our village, what can we do for you? So this is the, the vow is the commitment not to hold on, not to steal or take what doesn't belong to us, but the practice is really the giving heart. Two more of these vows or commitments. To refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct, misuse of sexuality. And I always ask the basic fundamental question for this. How many people in the room have made idiots of themselves in their sexual relations? Do not bother raising your hand. <laughs> because it's that universal, isn't it? Hmm? All the hands. Some people would raise two hands, right? <laughs> so this vow says that with this powerful energy of sexuality, again, a commitment to not harm out of aggression or addiction or whatever it is. And traditionally, it's refraining from um, rape and incest and, and adultery and various things that cause harm. Um, now, it's, you know, the most simple translation is not to cause harm to oneself, to a second person, or to anybody else, to a third person, through our actions. Because sexuality can be associated with grasping or aggression or all these kinds of things that harm one another, or it can be associated with respect, with intimacy, with love, with care for another being. And so we can actually cultivate the positive side of it, of the, the quality of intimacy and communion. It's such a powerful energy because it takes us so close to birth and death, doesn't it? I mean, that's how we got born. Remember that? Well, if you think back, right? It creates human beings, but also in the surrender of that union, it is one of the times of the most natural samadhi, one of the most natural um, wholeness or letting go beyond the small sense of self that comes to us as human beings. Um, and so there's really something sacred about it. And in fact, you know, all these kind of workshops about sexual tantra and things like that, underlying them all, is the quality of worship to make that energy, uh, to allow that energy to be held in a sacred way for one's partner. And then the other vow or training of wise action is to not cause harm to oneself or others through the misuse of drugs or intoxicants. And again, first there's the part of restraint 10 million alcoholics, 20 million drug addicts, their families, their children, the majority of auto fatalities, the majority of home fires, the majority of child abuse. I mean, I don't, I can hardly, you know, stop going down a list of the amount of suffering that can be caused by the misuse of this. More fundamentally, it's the loss of our awareness of our humanness that is so precious and, as you know, not so easy to cultivate. So one is the vow or commitment out of compassion to not cause harm to self or others through that misuse. And then on the positive side, it is to cultivate and develop 
and and nurture that which keeps us conscious rather than that which makes us unconscious. Now imagine if human beings in our society were to take even one of these vows, even half. Suppose the society took the vow not just not to kill or this, this practice of compassion, but not to kill human beings. All right, we could still kill other kinds of beings, but I mean, you wouldn't even recognize the world, would you? Suppose we did that. If we took seriously the practice of not speaking falsely, you know, not telling, tell, speaking the truth, which we talked about last time, it would be our whole, it would be unrecognizable. I mean, first of all, entire industries would go out the window, you know. A good part of what's printed and written and spoken and our entire entertainment and television, I mean, it, it would be phenomenal not to speak of our relationships. There's so much power to the commitment to even one of these practices. And it's not about sin or you're supposed to, people take these practices as a training over and over. It is the prescription or the medicine, the Buddha said, for those who find themselves in conflict in life, how to create a life that really brings happiness and beauty to their heart. And it's said that these practices of compassion and non-harming grow. In the beginning, they're kind of restraint to restrain from oneself from aggression and greed and, and so forth, not getting caught in those things. You know, because it's pretty easy. Um, our society kind of um, celebrates it in the movies and in, in our culture in different ways. So the first part is just learning, even from the beginning, the possibility of restraint. Um, and then it's possible to learn that there's a, there's a happiness in it. You know, there's that little book, Children's Letters to God. This is a sequel, My Mom's the Best Mom. It's children's letters about their moms. Um, when my little brother bothers me, my mother just says, you're the mature one, handle it. How I'd handle it is I'd mail him to Australia. <laughs> so this is an attempt at not harming, right? Or, my mom hates when I leave my clothes all around on the floor. She says, I'm not happy, Hannah. So I pick them up because it's better for me when she's happy. <laughs> so the first level, and it's really pretty elementary, is learning the possibility of not causing harm through a certain restraint. And then you begin to notice when you might tell something that wasn't true, or when you might harm another being, or when you might take something, you know, and there are all these kind of fuzzy ears, what about you know, how we drive, or what about our financial dealings, what about our taxes? And it's very interesting, you know, how to really look, and to look at what the motivation is when we're about to act. Is it greed? Is it, you know, is there integrity to it? What does it actually feel like inside? Then the next level, beyond past the kind of restraint of these vows, is that cultivation of compassion, where instead of it being not greed or not hatred, it's actually love. It's generosity, it's wakefulness. And then gradually it becomes what's called um, shining virtue or the, the kind of um, uh, innate compassion where it's not a practice at all, 
not by rules, not by trying to do it, but it's the sense that we are really all in it together. And how could you harm, how could you not care for this other being that is your sister or your brother, brother ants and sister spiders? And you should hear the Dalai Lama talk about insects. He just goes on and on about how he wished he could meditate with the patience that a spider makes her web. He said, I learned so much from the spiders in my room. And, you know, I wish I could practice with the dedication of these ants that are moving these things. And he, he says, I get so inspired in my practice watching the, the Buddha nature in all these little creatures. Now, the truth is that our hearts are good. We simply forget to ask. We get so lost in the whirlwind of speed and in habit and in the small sense of self that we forget the beauty that is there in our own true nature. And that's what these practices of wise action lead to. Not that they make you a better person, but they, they remind you of the beauty that is already there. O oh, nobly born, are you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, remember who you really are. Act with that dignity. Live from that place of compassion. Dalai Lama puts it this way. He says, Now religion is very good, but sometimes I think religion and even moral teachings are a luxury. Even without religion we can manage, we can survive. But compassion and love, without these things, we cannot survive. Let's do a little reflection. Let yourself sit for a moment. Just becoming quiet and coming back to one's own heart and mind and breath and body. And in these simple practices, the vows of compassion are non-harming. Which particular practices do you need to pay attention to? The one of not killing and harming, the one of not stealing, cultivating generosity. The one of not causing harm through the misuse of sexuality. Cultivating love in that area. The one of not causing harm to yourself or others through the misuse of intoxicants. The one from last week of speaking what's true and helpful, not causing harm in words. Let yourself reflect. Which ones are the ones that ask for your attention? And let yourself imagine as well or sense the beauty, the peacefulness of heart, the integrity 
that could come if you really, really follow your inner compassion in that area. If you could recite one training precept, one vow to yourself right now that would really help your life to follow, what would it be? This winter, January and February, Monday nights, we've been going back to one of the most central and fundamental teachings in the Buddhist tradition, which is the Eightfold Path of Practice, offered by the Buddha as an outline and a series of practices or ways of living that lead to happiness and that lead to awakening and that lead to uh, enlightenment and uh, freedom of the heart and mind. And we began some Mondays ago, some weeks ago, speaking about right understanding or wise understanding, the potential that we each sense for greater compassion, for greater presence, for greater freedom, and then wise attitude, uh, which is that of openness, of discovery, of really learning from the situations of our life what entangles us in suffering and what leads us to freedom by paying attention. And then the ground of practice, uh, the necessary ground of compassion, we talked about what's called right speech or wise speech, wise action, which in some ways quite simply are the actions that don't harm other beings or actions of compassion because it's very hard to have any kind of spiritual path if it's not founded on a fundamental integrity and compassion. As I said a couple of weeks ago, it's pretty hard to meditate as well after a day of killing and stealing and lying. It doesn't work terribly well to put those together. So this evening, the next step of the Eightfold Path is called right livelihood or wise livelihood and it's one of the factors of enlightenment one of the qualities of an awakened life that the buddha put in his very first teachings and what does it mean this wise livelihood how are we to understand it it's said in the buddhist text when the noble disciple and the noble disciple means you. <laughs> the sons and daughters of the Buddhas who may have forgotten their heritage, but when they remember, when we remember our O nobly born, who we are, practices, they avoid wrong livelihood and cultivate right livelihood. And what is wrong livelihood or unwise livelihood? It is livelihood that causes harm through deceit, treachery, trickery that is involved in killing or stealing, that harms in any way the traffics in weapons, the traffics in exploitation of others, human beings. And instead, what wise livelihood is, or right livelihood, is those qualities, says the Buddha, where one makes effort 
to dwell attentively and compassionately with the circumstances of this world and to contribute in a wholesome way or in a wise way to oneself and to one's community. In a different text, the Buddha is asked to list the blessings of a human life. And he starts with some very simple ones to associate with good friends and not those who are foolish, to reside in a suitable location, to have acted in the past in ways that are beneficial or good for oneself and others, to be well-spoken, to be trained and well-educated, to be skilled in a craft, to be highly disciplined. These are blessings. To care for one's family, one's community, to engage in a blameless occupation. These are the blessings of human life. And then he goes on to talk about the other blessings of compassion and loving-kindness and awareness and liberation. So those are some of the teachings about right livelihood or wise livelihood. And what does it mean in a more immediate sense? One of the things that I love about going to India is that when you take a taxi in India, those little Indian taxis, um, almost all the time, not only do you get into a taxi, but the taxi is also a little bit of a temple because there's an altar and there's a picture of Krishna or Shiva or Saraswati or Kali or Durga or, or one of many other forms of God. And there'll be a little bit of incense and a mala and some flowers that are left there. And there's some way in which the taxi is a conveyance to take you from one place to another. But there's another way in which also it carries the prayers of that person who is driving it, which of course in India you also need just to get from one place to another given the way that people drive and the crowds even worse than our Bay Area streets. Um, but there's a quality in that that yes, this is the work and this is the livelihood, but within the livelihood, within what we do, there is also this dimension of what is sacred or holy. So a story. In an Indian village lived a weaver who was very pious. All day long, he would chant the name of God, and people trusted him implicitly. When he had woven cloth, he would take it to the marketplace to be sold, and if anyone asked the price, he would say, by the will of Ram, Ram was his mantra, Rama was his way of praising God, the price of the yarn is 35 cents, the labor 10 cents, the profit by the will of God, 4 cents. So the price of this piece by the will of Ram, 49 cents. And people had such faith in him, they never questioned. Now he was in the habit of going to the village temple at night to sing and chant the praises and glories of Rama. And one night, while he was chanting, a band of robbers burst in. They needed someone to carry their stolen goods for him, for them, so they said, come with us. And they demanded that he do so, so he had to accompany them with the goods in his arms. Soon after, the police gave chase and the robbers began to run. The weaver ran with them, but since he was an older man, the police soon caught up with him, and finding him carrying stolen goods, they arrested him and threw him in jail. Following morning, he was sent before the judge, accused of burglary. When the judge asked him what he had to say for himself, this is how he replied. Your Honor, 
By the will of Ram, I finished my meal last night, and by the will of Ram, I went to the temple there to chant his praises. That is when suddenly, by the will of Ram, a band of robbers burst in, and again by Rama's will, they entreated me to carry their goods for them. They put such a pressure on me that by the will of Ram, the police gave chase, and I was easily caught. And then, by the will of Ram, I was arrested and thrown in jail, and here I am standing before you this morning, all by the will of Ram. The judge said to the policeman, let the man go, he's evidently out of his mind. <laughs> Back home when he asked what happened, the pious fellow said, by the will of Ram, I was arrested and tried in court, and by the will of Ram, I have been acquitted. <laughs> Often for this particular talk, I will read a different story which comes out of this storybook um, that Christine Feldman and I did some time ago. And it's the story of a taxi driver in Boston. I feel very close to that as a profession since I drove a taxi in Boston. I drove for Checker for a while when I was in graduate school. And I learned a few things. Um, I also developed some, what my teenage daughter would call, um, Dad, you have some really bad driving habits. <laughs> because in Boston, red lights are just a suggestion, right? <laughs> And mostly you park by sound there, see if you make an impact. But anyway, um, so this story was written, um, and it's a fellow who gets in the taxi um, and gets caught, as we do all the time now in the Bay Area, in this huge traffic jam, you know. And then the taxi driver says, look at them all, they're getting apoplectic, they're having heart attacks, they're having strokes, and all because they want to be somewhere else, and they don't ha know how to be where they are. And the person in the back seat says, "Will you? You know, you don't. You don't get in a hurry." He said, "No, no. I'm doing what I like. I like what I do, and I always am working just where I'm supposed to be, which is where I am. I like it right here." And this conversation goes on for a long time, and finally, after a long time, they get to the destination, and the guy's getting out of the car, and the taxi driver says, "I don't know who you are, sir." but I hope you like being where you are and I hope you like what you do because it's the only thing that makes life worthwhile. And the man reflects, he said, here I am, the governor of the state of Massachusetts, who wrote this story, going to a meeting that I don't want to go to, spending time with people that I don't want, and I look enviously on this taxi driver who's smiling and driving away. <laughs> so what is wise livelihood? In one dimension, the aspect of compassion or integrity, as we said, or as the Buddha said, is to make a livelihood in such a way that doesn't harm other beings, not to deal in drugs or weapons or exploitation. The Buddha goes on to find work that is honest, sincere, legal, used to awaken oneself and others. Now, it's pretty confusing in these times not to deal in drugs or weapons and so forth, because the U.S., our country, is such a major exporter. We are the largest exporter of weapons on the face of the earth. And we, people don't talk about it, but we make a lot of our national income by selling weapons to all these other countries. I, I say this often in here. It astounds me that no one has a conversation about it. Um, and then we wonder why the world isn't safe or why there isn't enough to eat when a trillion dollars a year or something is spent on weapons. Um, Václav Havel, after he 
got out of prison in Czechoslovakia, the poet and activist, and was made president of the Czech Republic, like Nelson Mandela in South Africa, um, one of the, the first decree that he made is that Czechoslovakia will no longer export arms. It had an arms industry. Um, and that caused a rupture and a separation of the countries because Slovakia had a big part of the weapons factories and they withdrew. And there are now two countries, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. But he said, I will not be the president of a country that makes its living by creating weapons and selling them to others. We live in a society where livelihood isn't questioned in that way, where growth isn't questioned. You know, we just have to have more and do more, and our gross national product becomes the gross thing rather than how we live. And then there is the kinds of exploitation of environment, of human beings, of community, when work gets to be production-oriented and not people. As it said, the tribe is lost when every day the sun rises and nobody sings. You know, and there's not a lot of singing going on and when you go out on 101 in the morning on the way to work. Maybe, but I don't see a lot of it. When work, when, when that becomes an orientation and livelihood is made into, again, a kind of a grim duty or based on greed or power and, and so forth. Another story for you. A 14-year-old boy announced at dinner one evening he'd been chosen to teach his class the next day. His father, who was an expert in instruction methods for the business community, seized this occasion to give his son the benefit of his experience. This is the way we go about telling our contractors, son, he said. First, we choose objectives made up of action, situation, and level of performance. Now you decide ahead of time what action you want your students to perform, in what situation you want them to perform it, and how well you wish them to perform. And remember, all education must be directed at performance, 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 the bottom line. The boy wasn't impressed. All he said was, it won't work, Dad. <laughs> of course it will. It always works. Why wouldn't it work? Because, said the young fellow, I'm supposed to give a class on sex. <laughs> So how do we find satisfaction, awareness, awakening through our work? It's not money alone, clearly. I mean, you know, when you look at the dollar bill and there are all those beautiful mystical symbols on it, that I, you know, and so forth, and then it says, in God we trust, um, which you remember when that was put on there, when we went off the gold standard, right? And I said, okay, you're not going to change it for gold anymore, in God we trust. Um, but we know that it's not money alone. How do we find satisfaction? The first important thing is to know what is really important, what is enough. J.P. Morgan said at one point, there's a certain Buddhistic calm that comes from having money in the bank. But how much money is enough money? A quarter of a million, a half million, a million, you know? Um, I... Uh, I got an alumni questionnaire from Dartmouth College, where I went to school, um, and which was at best a mixed experience for me. Um, and they wanted to know, you know, 
what you do, it's for their newsletter, and what your how big your family is, and what your company does, and you know what uh, honors you've had, and what you published, and particularly they were interested in your pattern of giving. Do you support charitable foundations, and might you support the the, the college or the university. And then at the end, they write, what range most nearly represents the net worth of your household? Zero to half million. <laughs> half million to three million. Three to five million. Five to ten. Ten to twenty-five. Twenty-five to fifty. Fifty to a hundred million. A hundred million plus. I looked at that and I was stunned. <laughs> Apparently, I went to the wrong... I did it wrong at that school, I don't know. <laughs> went to the wrong classes or something. Probably went to the right classes, actually. Here. You don't have to have a high-pressure job to feel stress and anxiety. Most people from all walks of life have to cope with stress. A Lou Harris poll found that nearly 9 out of 10 Americans experience high levels of stress, especially in regard to work. A report from Indiana University says that one quarter of Americans have felt they were on the verge of a nervous breakdown. No wonder among the top-selling drugs in the United States are so many for depression and anxiety. So how much is enough? How much work? How much money? 50 hours a week? 60? 80 hours a week? The first noble truth of the Buddha is the truth of suffering, unsatisfactoriness insecurity, struggle. And if we follow greed and endless desire and the need for protection over and over again, what we discover is there's never enough. It doesn't work that way. As uh, Helen Keller puts it, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of humans on the whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. So the first noble truth just acknowledges that there's conflict and suffering. And then the second noble truth is its cause, which is craving, grasping, dissatisfaction with what we have and the constant seeking of more, the holding on, the trying to control things that we cannot control, the looking for security where it can't be found. And it's certainly so in mistaken ways in livelihood. Plato puts it this way, poverty is not the absence of goods, but rather the overabundance of desire. And I know that he's not speaking about the poverty of people born in the situations of injustice and, you know, the poverty prisons that we've created in this country, but the poverty of the heart. Or this quote from Oriana Falacci, you wear yourself out in the pursuit of wealth or love or freedom. You do everything to gain something, and once it's gained, you take no pleasure in it because you're trying to gain the next thing. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers, says Wordsworth. And it can be, as they say in India, 
a golden chain. You know, it's not a chain of iron. It might be the most elegant circumstances that we have and still are unsatisfied with and want more. Rabindranath Tagore, who writes, The child who is decked with prince's robes and has jeweled chains round his neck loses all pleasure in his play. His dress hampers him at every step. In fear it may be frayed or stained. With dust he keeps himself from the world and is afraid to move. It is no gain if the bondage of our finery keeps us shut off from the healthful dust of the earth, if it robs us of the right of entrance to the great fair of common human life and the heart we find therein. And you know, I've noticed kids who have everything and they say, I'm bored. What do you want? I have everything. I'm bored. I also remember being in villages in Indonesia, in Latin America, in places where kids played with a tin can as a wheel attached to a stick, you know, or with the water buffaloes or with the marbles. Fantastic to have marbles for hours. And there was as much creativity and love and joy in that one set of marbles for a year than in all the playstations and video games and junk that you could imagine. Now, because this has been an election year, you remember that? <laughs> it's worthwhile to talk a little bit about some of the underpinnings of our economic civilization, what we assume makes happiness. Since the 1600s in Europe, during that period that was called the Enlightenment, where science was separated from mysticism and religion, and now we have everything quite rational with Thomas Hobbes and John Locke and so forth, there grew the idea of a social contract, which says that we are innately separate beings, out for ourselves, driven by desire for power and goods. And therefore, it's posited that certain rules for governments and laws need to be set up so we don't take undue advantage of one another in our pursuit of self-aggrandizement. That's kind of the philosophical underpinnings of capitalism in a certain way. It's true. Here's Sigmund Freud's commentary on it. Culture has to call up every possible reinforcement in order to erect barriers against the aggressive instincts of men. I'll leave it in that gender for the moment. Its ideal command to love one's neighbor as oneself is really justified by the fact that nothing is so completely at variance with original human nature as this. Thank you, Sigmund. So he has, he has a relatively dark view of our nature, to say the least. And yet, the truth is that that, what you might call an amoral view of our human life, um, forgets the necessity of care and virtue for us simply to live together in community. And James Madison wrote about this when he said, no amount of checks and balances, no form of government can render us secure. To suppose that any form of government will secure liberty or happiness 
without virtue in the people, without good hearts in the people, is a chimerical idea. It simply can't happen. It doesn't come from the government. It comes from the hearts of humans. Or from another economic um, analyst, Thomas Macaulay, who writes about the, how the ends of empire happens, you know, when the barbarians are coming, the vandals and the goths, and continues, only this time the barbarians are not at the gates. The barbarians have been running the country for some years now. So what does this have to do with wise livelihood? To follow the way of the Dharma, to follow the way of the heart of the spiritual teachings of life, often means to swim upstream, to go against the current of the forces around us. Because happiness in the Dharma, Dharma is a Sanskrit word which means truth or the law, the Tao, the way things are. Happiness in the Dharma comes not by possession, and not by accumulation, and not by oneself alone. It doesn't mean you can't have things, but it's that is the meaning of your life. You won't be happy. Possession, accumulation, self alone. Happiness comes by interconnectedness, by generosity and respect and the honoring of all life. So that when you begin a meal in the Zen community, you start with a chant, 99 labors made this food. The labors of the sun and the rain and the earthworms and the bugs of the soil and the farmers and the laborers who hand-picked that food and the laborers who drove the trucks to the market. Or as it says in the Tao, the wheat relies on the rain, a sail relies on the wind, and I, a merchant, rely on the customer. We rely on one another and the truth is that we're not independent, we are interdependent. Otherwise, there is tremendous suffering. From Alexis de Tocqueville, it is possible to have outer liberty and still be enslaved. He wrote this 160 years ago or something like that. The time may come when men are carried away by the pursuit of wealth to such an extent that they lose all self-restraint and in their exclusive anxiety to make a fortune they will neglect their chief business which is to remain their own masters the masters of their spirits or their hearts interconnectedness speaks to moderation being true to ourselves nourishing our own heart and family and community in a wise way to know what is enough. Wisdom, said the Buddha, is to be responsible, to be free from debt, to be content within your means, to be free from anxiety, to be free from covetousness and greed or the need to impress others. And the Buddha goes on, in livelihood, you should do four things with the wealth that you create. One part, portion should be used for the support of yourself and your family. A second portion should be put back into your business or your work that it might grow. 
a third portion should be saved for the future. And the fourth should be, com- should be shared with the community in a generous way for those who need around you. It's so important if we really want to live a wakeful life, we spend so much of our time, quote, working, to begin to really pay attention to it. Aldous Huxley put it this way. He said, an idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for eternity. Future time in the idea of progress and gain is like the devil's work demanding human sacrifice on an enormous scale. The idol, the idolatrous religion is one in which time and gain is substituted for eternity. So wise livelihood or right livelihood in the positive sense means living in the eternal present, being where we are like that taxi driver. Do not pursue the past says the Buddha. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has yet to come. Looking deeply at life as it is here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability, in ease, and in freedom. Not enslaved by a single thing, it is possible to put aside fear and craving. The result is a life of peace and joy. And this is, although it sounds somewhat philosophical, if you will, or maybe poetical, it's really instructions for wise living from the Buddha. Whether you are an office worker, whether you have your own business. And I read this beautiful article in the San Francisco Chronicle last winter about a bus driver who would welcome people on the bus, especially when it was raining a lot you know, and where are you going? He was really friendly to people and he would help the people who came on and help the people. And he became really popular on his bus and people would want to wait for his bus, you know, because the day was difficult. And here was the bus driver that remembered them, asked them how they were doing, and really wanted to know the answer. Zen Master Sansanin, Korean Roshi, friend of mine, and um, the founder of a very large um, community of temples all around the world, when he first came to the West as a young, youngish Zen master, didn't speak very good English, didn't have any students, decided, I come to America, I come to teach. Very, not much English, only a few words. But he didn't, you know, have any students, and he needed money, what to do. He said, so I get a job. I work in a laundromat. He said, this good, this good meditation. You know, putting clothes in, taking them out. After the ecstasy, the laundry. This is an ad, actually. Right? <laughs> Fixing the machines when they break. He did it in Providence, Rhode Island, right near Brown University. So here he is in his Zen robes in there, working in the laundromat, cleaning the floor and so forth. Students are coming in. He tried to talk to them. They say, what are you? He said, oh, I Zen. I Zen. Sit, sitting, sitting Zen. You know, very, very little language. And gradually, the students became interested, though they would go down the laundromat, wash their clothes, and he'd say, ah, you come sit, ah, 
clothes to wash him. You sit. We sit together, right? They would sit for a little while, right? And slowly, slowly, a community collected around him, you know, and they were having the laundromat was like the zen, zendo, right? And then after a while, more people came, and they said, oh, we must get a place, and he got his first little zen center, you know, and after a while, left the laundromat, and he, they said, oh, we have to support you. We need a real zen teacher, and so forth. And then it grew to a hundred centers around the world, and so forth. But the spirit of it was that possibility of bringing wakefulness and care to whatever work is given to us. And that is really the centerpiece of wise livelihood after we stop harming others. The idea isn't to have a perfect job. That's kind of an American myth, like the perfect marriage, right? Or the perfect man or the perfect woman. Forget it, right? like Barbie or something like that. Instead, it's to find the livelihood, the best livelihood that you can. That's all. You don't always get to choose. And then to do that livelihood as if it were your temple. And when we were in the monastery, we swept the paths, we cleaned the toilets, we cleaned the huts, we built New huts, we went to meetings with the monks, and it wasn't so different. You had to live a life. We had to wash the dishes and bowls and so forth after the meals. So the idea isn't that you're going to find the perfect, always interesting, wonderful job. Have you noticed, those of you who meditate regularly, how boring meditation can be? I mean, let's face it. It's really not all that interesting sometimes breath comes in and the breath goes out, there's another one of those same damn thoughts, the same ones coming again, you know, and then you complain, well, my work is boring. The monastery is boring. It's supposed to be, actually. The idea isn't to make it, oh, now it's Disneyland, every day something new and, you know, you take a new ticket, but rather to refine our attention so that every day becomes interesting in its own right and every person we meet becomes interesting in their right, not because of some idea we have, but because the immediate present moment is actually alive. It becomes the place of our practice. And it's the perfect place to learn patience, your work, to learn compassion, to learn truthfulness, to learn steadiness of heart. All of what are called the perfections of a Buddha, it is your temple, wherever it happens to be that you work. To make it one's practice how to do it. Practice there. Try loving-kindness meditation, those of you who do it. Try it with the people that you meet. Try it in your meetings before you start to talk. Just sit and do a little metta inside. I don't mean be weird about it. You don't have to let anybody know. But inside, a kind of blessing for each person or the people who come in the door. But what if it's difficult? What if they're difficult people? I remember when Ajahn Jamni and the Thai force teacher that comes every year was here, and the staff really wanted to meet with him because they were overwhelmed, especially in the front office. We get six, seven, eight hundred phone calls a day. What should we do? And there's so many different demands and it's too much. How do we practice with the telephone? He said, well, when the phone rings first, you let it ring three times. Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, you take a couple of breaths. Center yourself with each breath. Okay, now you're centered. Then you pick the phone up. You say hello. Then someone speaks. Said so you take it a little away from your ear and you try to listen, what is the energy coming out of that phone? Is it need? Is it demand? Is it angry? 
Is it love? Is it fear? You'll hear it right away. So, oh, you bow to that. Oh, this is fear. This is need. This is anger. All these kind of energies. Another breath in, you're ready, and you bring mindfulness and compassion to that fear or that love or that need or that whatever it is that's coming out. Good practice. They said, yeah, but what if you're really overwhelmed? He said, simple. He said, you have hold button, right? Say, Excuse me. Put them on hold. More breathing. Right? And back again. From Thich Nhat Hanh, he talks about the two ways to do the dishes, remember? You can either do the dishes to get them done, or you can do the dishes in order to do the dishes. I remember working uh, on an assembly line at a factory for a while, and it was actually it was a lot like the monastery. I mean, it was the same rote thing, and if, if only those people could pay attention in the right way, I mean, they just needed a monk in there to give them a little instructions. Um, it would have been really enlightening. The idea isn't that it's supposed to be a certain way, because that's not how life is given to us. It isn't. But to take what's given to us of necessity and of our connection with the community and work with it as our temple. So, important principle. Where is that first principle I wrote down here? Second. Oh, yeah. Living in the present. That's right right livelihood. <laughs> Forgot it. I was so much in the present, I couldn't find that. Second, right livelihood. Using it, really, using it as a means of awakening. The second part is that right livelihood or wise livelihood speaks of giving back to the world. As human beings, each of us has a deep longing to give to the world. Our creativity, our labor, our gifts, to be of service, to have a skill, as the Buddha says, to, to have uh, work. It's a great blessing. And it used to be in the village cultures, again, the places that I've lived in Asia or Latin America or other such places in African villages and so forth, everybody was needed to do something. And it's so important to be needed by your community there is a very great sorrow that comes for those who are unable to work and unable to give, unable to care for themselves and others, or unemployed. And unemployment is not just about money and jobs. Um, When there's job flight out of a community or um, all the circumstances that we know that mean that young men or young women born in certain places don't have opportunity to work, because of injustice or the inequality of society or the lack of opportunity or the racism or the bad schooling and all those things that contribute, we know about. The tragedy is that there are these people whose spirits want to give and don't have a way to do it. And this is because, unlike Freud and Hobbes and the others whom I read, there is some deep place in our being, our Buddha nature, that knows our interdependence and that there's a dignity that we would love to express, the love of work well done, and that knows that our self-interest is the same as the interest of our community if we could give of ourselves and be given back to 
in that respectful way. We breathe, we eat, we drink, we drive. There's an ecology that we are constantly a part of in nature and in the human community. And our happiness does not come from what we get. Our happiness comes from what we give. Tom Smerton says, as a writer, if you write for God, you will reach many men and women and bring them joy. If you write for men and women, you may make some money and you may give someone a little joy and you make a little noise in the world for a while. And if you write for your own self-promotion, you can read what you yourself have written and after ten minutes you'll be so disgusted you'll wish that you were dead. The happiness comes not from what we get, but from what we give. And this means in the end that life livelihood is not about the perfect job and that kind of myth, but the perfection and the freedom of our inner spirit. And taking responsibility to be here as a human being and to choose as best we can what's available to us and make it our temple. The Spanish proverb, Choose what you will and pay for it. One Cherokee chief puts it this way. I tell our young people that the way to get honor is to go to work and give their hearts to the work that they do. This is the way to get honor in this world in these days. Or from a Hasidic master, um, Someone went up and said, can you tell me about your master? What was the most important thing about your master? The most important thing to your master? And the disciple said, the most important thing to my master was whatever he happened to be doing at that moment. To make one's work one's temple. And if we do, it becomes contagious. The quality of attention and care and love and dignity, it spreads on, we catch it from one another. It says in Zen that there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. So you center yourself in meditation, make a place of stillness and compassion, let your heart open to the connectedness with all things, and then you get up from your seat and you move into the world and express that understanding in this great temple. So I like, of course, to talk about the toll takers on the Golden Gate Bridge, because periodically and regularly I run into very wonderful people there who are welcoming you <clears throat> to the city of St. Francis with such generosity, and they really look at you, I mean, all these people coming in. There's a kind of fantastic welcoming that's there. And it comes not so much from what we do again, but the spirit with which we do it. <clears throat> Somebody the other Monday night came and gave me this picture of these two little tiny premature infants in a, in a, uh, what do you call those things where they keep? Incubator. Um, and it's 
part of an article called The Rescue Hug. Apparently there was um, twins, fraternal twins, a boy and a girl that were born, um, quite little, and uh, one wasn't expected to live. Um, she was small, and uh, the heart rate and the heat weren't regulated and so forth. And one of the nurses in the hospital fought against separating the babies and put them together in the incubator. And immediately they snuggled up against one another and hugged each other. And within hours of doing that, the smaller baby's heart rate stabilized and her temperature rose to normal and she made it just fine. That's how contagious it is. Each time we answer the phone or meet a client or a customer or cook a meal or deliver the meal to the table as the waiter or write something that we have to write, you know, or pound in a nail or whatever happens to be, we can, if we pay attention, make that our meditation. And if we do, we will find in it a certain joy and beauty. Because the beauty comes when we pay attention, and when we love what we do. It's really basic to bring our awakening back to the world. In the Bible it says, but that the Lord build your house, you build it in vain. So that in the end, right livelihood means being where we are, not harming others, tending to it as a temple, as a place of awakening. And even more deeply, it becomes an expression of our enlightenment. It is an expression, a ritual of our tenderness, because we are awakened, and we are. We know this in ourselves. What we do shifts from that small sense of self, the body of fear that we talk about, that Freudian, Hobbesian identity, to that great heart of a Buddha, where we act with our whole body and heart and mind in concert. And through it we nurture and celebrate and honor and ennoble and revere and love, all of those things. And it's not done in some grand way. It's done in the simplest fashion. So Meher Baba puts it this way. He says, See if I can find it. The scope of true service is not limited to heroic acts, great gestures, huge donations to public institutions. They also serve who express their love in little things, a word that gives courage to a broken heart, a smile that brings hope in the midst of gloom, is as much service as heroic sacrifice. A glance that wipes out bitterness from the heart is also service, although there may be no thought of service in it. When taken by themselves, all these things seem to be small, but life is made up of many small things. And if these small things were ignored, life would be unbeautiful and unbearable. Joseph Campbell. People say that what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. I think that what we're really seeking is an experience of being alive, so that our life 
on the physical plane of this earth will have resonance within our innermost being so that we can actually feel the rapture of being human. The Buddha said in a number of different places this very wonderful passage. He said, if enlightenment, awakening, liberation of the heart, compassion, if these things were not possible, I would not teach them. But since enlightenment is possible, the awakening of the heart is possible, compassion is possible, I teach it. And this teaching or this dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. Let's sit for a moment. As you sit quietly, ask for a little bit of reflection. How might you make the livelihood work of your own life more of a temple? How might you bring the quality of sacred presence to that which you do as livelihood? We have um, maybe five minutes before we do a chant to end this evening. So I'd like to ask you a question. Um, As you did that reflection, or maybe as you remember those things that have helped to make the livelihood you do be a place of awakening, what have you done? What have you learned? What works for you? I'm looking for hints from the collective understanding here. few people? Yes.
So as a teacher, you see your work not just to teach the material, but really to tend to the spirits of, or hearts of those people, to follow up after the bell if there's been conflict, to be there for them as, as human beings, that relationship, and then secondarily the subject. Is that correct? Yeah, thank you. I wish there were, I mean, there probably are a lot of teachers who do that. I wish there were more support for that in our educational system. I think we're testing for the wrong things in some of our state tests. Yes, please. Could you hear her over there? Yeah, where her work as graphic designer is not really just graphic designer, but all those people in the panic, you're also their counselor. It's all right, it will get done, you can let go, or maybe you're their meditation teacher. Relax, we'll get it printed in time, your life will be okay. Thank you. That's great. Someone else, please. loving-kindness meditation with the clients and patients that come before they even come in the door, taking some minutes to just vision them, center, and, and wish the intentions of the heart. May they be well, may they be at peace, may they be safe, and so forth. And doing that when she's with them. And then partway through her time with the people, she'll stop and do a kind of prayer. May the ancestors, the Buddhas, the, the spirits that... Um, have been here long before me, may you give me guidance, may you support me um, in knowing how to be of use to them and to relieve their sorrows. And um, things come. She lets go and good things come. She finds that also working with children. 
Thank you. Just maybe one more. Please. Mm. I try to under-promise and over-deliver. And that way everyone is delighted. There's a little Zen story where someone was working on the you know, building the Zen center and the Zen master came out to say, how is it going? And the student said, well, it's, it's coming along fine. It's almost all finished up. All that there's left is just a few details. And the Zen master looked really perplexed and he said, but details are all there are. <laughs> all right, a little chant for the evening. And the chant is simply the single sound ah, which is a seed syllable in Sanskrit of the first sound, the last sound, um, and more fundamentally the sound of opening or letting go. So we'll just sing ah for a little bit and you can feel it in your bodies, what it's time to let go of. Because coming here, it's not so much you come to get something. This is really the place to let go of stuff as best you can. Sitting, letting go, so that you can be open and keep that beginner's mind when you go back. This talk was given by Jack Cornfield at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in March 1992. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.